We're in Ezekiel chapter 40. This is the construction of the Millennial Temple. And quite frankly, this is one of the more boring parts of Scripture. Um, because the construction here is not nearly as detailed as the tabernacle. But it's every bit as long. And part of the reason for that is it's a much bigger structure. Well, let's, let's go ahead and dive in. In the 20th year of our exile, in the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, on the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel, set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. Notice a structure like a city. So this is a large place. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway, and he said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I will show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And behold, there was a wall all around outside the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed man's hand was six long cubits each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. So this is from elbow to fingertip plus a hand's breadth. Now, the standard cubit is considered to be from elbow to fingertips, and it is 18 inches long. Depending on whether you do a hand breadth like this or a hand breadth like this, that's either three or four inches. And one of the sources I've read did it like this, so it's 22. Another one did it like this, so it's 21. I have no idea which it actually is. Now, the diagrams that I have here are very nice because as you read this description, it's, for me, almost impossible to keep up with what's being said, which isn't to say that this is right. This is one, or committees, rendering an understanding of what is being described here in Scripture doesn't mean that they are right. But it does give us a, a visual thing that we can look at and we can certainly talk about it. And there's some interesting things going on, none of which are the measurements. Right. Having gone to Israel and talked to the Temple Institute, they do not contemplate building this, first because it's too large to fit the Temple Mount, and second because they are not sure what the measurements are. It's their understanding that they will get those from Messiah. As I read this, I'm not sure that that's accurate. And the reason I say that is because you have the prince who, from previous scripture that we've read, seems to be David. And it seems to be a resurrected, literal David. So he's there. And then during this stuff that we're going to skim through, and I don't want to read you four chapters of blueprints, which is what it is. What we find is during that process, the Shekinah comes in and inhabits this temple. So the presence of God enters while Ezekiel is watching this being, whoever he is, measure the place. If we believe, as I do, that Messiah is God, I'm not sure that he's going to be able to settle that question before he shows up to take residence. If you understand what I'm saying. In other words, he's going to show up to take residence and expects it to be built. 
So I'm going to take you on a fast tour of this place. And, and as I say, I'm not going to try and read all of this just because we would be glazed over pretty quickly. And I'm going to rely on this concept, if you will, of the architecture. And, and, and everybody understand that this could be wrong because you've got somebody like me who sat down and read this thing and, and tried to draw based on the words. And I am also assuming that they tried to draw based on their knowledge of the tabernacle and their knowledge of Solomon's temple. So you've got three gates into it. The three gates are identical. And there's three of these guys. Actually, there's six of them because there's three gates into the outer court and then there's three gates into the inner court. And they're lined up. So the, the eastern gate on both lines up and the northern and the southern gate line up. And what you have in there is steps, and the number of steps vary. These are what you would call guard chambers. And then on the inner gates, at least the north and the south inner gate, this area is basically a slaughterhouse where they've got tables and stuff to handle the sacrifice and hooks to hang it up and tables to skin it and all that kind of stuff. What you've got here then is the east gate to the outer court and you've got a description in detail of that gate. How many reeds it is and number of steps and all this kind of stuff. And then he says that he's going to take a circuit and he's going to go up the north and he's going to come around and go to the south and that these two gates are essentially identical. This distance from the wall or the inner court, if you will, the, the gate area, to the temple proper is 100 cubits, which is 175 feet. And if you remember the tabernacle in the wilderness, the outer curtains are 100 cubits. And it doesn't specify, in Moses' case, that it's a cubit plus a span. Could be. It just doesn't specify in Scripture, I don't believe. I think it's just straight cubit, whatever that means. And so... As I started off by saying, the tabernacle in the wilderness would fit right there. So this is a big place. So anyway, then he goes to the outer court, and you've got these six groups of five rooms around the side. Behold, there were chambers and pavement all around the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement, and the pavement ran along the side of the gates, corresponding to the length of the gates. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the distance from the lower inner front of the lower gate to the outer front of the inner court, 100 cubits on the east side, on the north side. Notice you don't have 100 cubits on the back, but you don't have a gate either. So then he goes to the north gate and gives you the same measurements, and he goes to the south gate and gives you the same measurements again. So then he goes into the inner court. He brought me to the inner court through the south gate. Measured the south gate, it was the same size as the others, its side, and so forth. And for some reason, there are palm trees on the door jams. And I'm assuming that's just decoration. Then he brought me to the inner court on the east side, measured the gate. So there are eight steps on each of these gates. Raised eight steps from the surrounding area. And then the inner court is raised yet again another eight steps. And we go to the north gate, and we've got palm trees on the jams and so forth. 
and there was a chamber with its door in the vestibule of the gate where the burnt offerings was to be washed. In other words, you're bringing a sheep or a goat or a, a bull in, and you got to wash its feet and you know get it basically cleaned up before you sacrifice it. Verse 38. There was a chamber with its door in the vestibule of the gate where the burnt offering was to be washed. And in the vestibule of the gate, there were two tables on either side on which the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. And off to the side, on the outside, as one goes up to the entrance of the north gate, there were two tables. Four tables were on either side of the gate, eight tables on which to slaughter. And there were four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, a cubit and a half long, a cubit and a half breadth, and one cubit high, on which the instruments were delayed with which the burnt offerings and the sacrifices were slaughtered. And hooks a hundred handbreadth long were fastened all around within, and on the tables the flesh of the offering was to be laid. You've got in this area a place to prepare and slaughter sacrifices. Now, We've said all this before, but this is as good a place to reinforce it as any. Notice that they are planning to do animal sacrifices. And this is in the millennial temple in the presence of either the Messiah or the Shekinah or both. So it is not the case that the sacrificial system has been done away with by the sacrifice of the Messiah. Furthermore, we know from reading the book of Acts that there are a number of cases where the apostles themselves went right into the temple and sacrificed. They participated in all the temple ceremonies. We know for a fact that Paul went to sacrifice when he cleared his Nazarite vow. So those people who say that this old system is done away with never to be started up again because it would be an insult to the blood of Jesus, or whatever rationale they give, they're all wet. That is not scriptural. The apostles didn't believe that, and scripture doesn't support that. The sacrificial system is going to start up again. And it's going to be approved and authorized by God and the Messiah. This is not going to be some wild things that the Jews who don't have Jesus in their heart are going to take up. That, that is not the case. But one of the things that we'll see is that the prince is the only one that's going to be able to use the eastern gate because the Shekinah will come through that and after that it's sealed and nobody else gets to use it except the prince, and that's what he's called, the prince here in Ezekiel, does get to sit in the eastern gate and dine in the presence of God. And I'm assuming that that prince is David just from previous context. I may be very wrong. You know, we may be talking Messiah and the Shekinah. I, I don't know. It, all it says here is the prince. So 44. On the outside of the inner gateway, there were two chambers in the inner court, one on each side of the north facing south and the other on the side of the south facing north. He said to me, the chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. And the chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of Levi may come near the Lord to minister to him. And notice, by the way, that you have sons of Zadok, not sons of Aaron. Zadok is a son of Aaron. Don't get me wrong. If you read earlier here in Ezekiel, remember he was taking a stripe off the priests for not 
doing what they were supposed to do. And what he says is Zadok is the only one that didn't lead the people astray. Because of that, he's the only one that gets to minister to me or his sons. Okay? And he says further that all the Levites are going to be there, but they're going to be doing menial chores. They're going to be gatekeepers and cleaners up. But the guys that are doing the real ministry before God are the sons of Zadok because he was faithful. And God has done that one other time that I know of. Anybody know where? First Samuel, Eli. Eli was the priest who trained Samuel. He had two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, who were corrupt. And all three of them died. But before Eli died, God said, because your sons were corrupt, you didn't raise them properly, and they defiled my temple, you will not have an old man in your house forever. And so all of them died after that from that line, as far as I know forever, at about the age of 40 or 45. They were still Levites. They still had jobs to do. God didn't break his covenant. The covenant stands, the promises to Levi. But because this family, who was the high priest, was corrupt, he said, you will not have an old man in your family forever. And so they all died young. As, as you all know, people die at various ages. But that particular line dies at about 40 or 45. As I say, I plan to be done with the blueprint this week. But there are some things that are sort of tucked in there that are important to talk about. There's no labor. The priests do not have to wash as they go in because there's no labor there. And that's because this is New Covenant stuff. They have had their hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh. These people are ministering in the presence of God. All right, so I'm going to now skip forward to 43. And now we have, then he led me to the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by the Hebar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of the kings at their high places. By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them, they have defiled my holy name by their abomination that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. And as for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws. Write it down in their sight 
so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple, the whole territory on top of the mountain, all around shall be most holy. Besides, this is the law of the temple. Now he is saying to Ezekiel, write it down and show it to the exiles and show it to us, of course. And I have, quite frankly, no idea why a set of blueprints would make you feel shame. But it's going to. There is something about that set of blueprints that when we really comprehend what it's saying is going to bring shame to those of us who are in exile for good reason, which is all of us. All right, and now we've got the altar. These are the arrangements of the altar by cubits. The base shall be one cubit and so forth. The steps of the altar shall face east. I'm in verse 18. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it. You shall give to the Levitical priest of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord, a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and the four corners of the ledge and upon the rim and so forth. And we'll go through the purification, and I'm not going to go through all of that. And by the way, you do this for seven days. They shall make atonement for the altar and cleanse it so as to consecrate it. Chapter 44. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened. No one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. So what he does is he comes in by some other gate the north of the south gate, to get into the compound. And then from the inside of the compound, he goes down to the south gate. And there he may sit and eat bread. And he's the only one that gets to do it. The gate itself is closed and is not used by anyone else. Verse 4. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. And I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears, all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary and say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations in admitting foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple when you offer to me my food, the fat and the blood, you have broken my covenant in addition to all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. In other words, they've hired people to do it. The problem is that they have let people in who are uncircumcised, both of flesh and of heart. The law in Israel is only those males who are physically circumcised may eat of the Passover. Furthermore, once you are physically circumcised and you have declared your allegiance to the God of Israel, you're an Israelite. That's what God is doing with Gentiles, is grafting them in. So the requirements to join Israel, regardless of what the nation of Israel says right now, the biblical requirements to join Israel is you change sides and you get circumcised. 
And, of course, we talked about the issue in Galatians, where the issue in Galatians was that the rabbis were saying, yeah, it's very nice that you've actually been circumcised, but if we didn't do it, it doesn't count, so you've got to do it again. The issue in Galatians is not biblical circumcision. Nine. Thus says the Lord, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel, shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me, going astray from me, after their idols, when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment. Right, now notice we've changed subjects. So we've got foreigners. Now we're talking about Levites. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people. And they shall stand before the people to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priest, nor come near to any of my holy things and the things that are most holy. But they shall bear their shame and the abominations they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple, to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. In other words, he made a covenant with the Levites at the golden calf. That covenant stands. None of the Levites have been thrown out in the cold. Got a use for all of them. They aren't all going to like the use they're put to, but they've all got a use in accordance with the original covenant. And over the centuries, various Levites have done things that have disqualified them in God's eyes from coming into his presence and doing the most holy stuff, if you will. And he knows who those are. And he knows the ones that have not defiled themselves with idols and led people astray. And he said, those are the ones, sons of Zadok, who are going to come into the most holy place. But the rest of you guys, are you going to be keeping the gates? You're going to be slaughtering the stuff? You, I mean, I got use for you, but it's not probably what you imagined when you got born into the tribe. We've got some rules for the priest, what they wear, basically nothing that causes them to sweat. Can't drink wine, verse 21. This is pretty much a restatement of the laws of the priesthood from the Torah. The function of a priest or a Levite is they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. In a dispute, they shall act as judges and they shall judge according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed feasts and they shall keep my Sabbaths holy. And this occurs other places in Scripture. The function of a priest and the function of a prophet, it says in other places, is to teach about clean and unclean, to whore and to my, and about the Sabbaths. Those things are very important to God, and it's up to the people who speak for him to talk about those things, Levites and prophets. We know what the rules are from the Torah. We know what's clean and what's unclean from the Torah, and it's the job of the priesthood to teach that. Under the New Covenant, the law is written on our hearts, so why is anybody teaching? It's a great question. And I have sort of two thoughts on it. One is, this is a statement of the job of a priest and a prophet. This is sort of the minimum set of standards I expect you to do. This, this is your core function, if you will. Teach my people the difference between clean and unclean, holy and profane, and about my Sabbaths. And in that sense, it's a restatement of your job. Having the Torah written on your heart apparently doesn't get rid of questions that arise among people, points of law, those kinds of things. And their job is to make judgments there. 
there's a rabbinic story. A gal gets a chicken, and there is a spot of blood on the chicken. They're having the rabbi over for supper. And so she sends her husband off to ask the rabbi, can we use this chicken? And there's a great Torah scholar in town. And so one of them goes to the great Torah scholar, and the other one goes to the local rabbi, and they get two different answers. The great Torah scholar says, no, it's not acceptable. The, the local rabbi says, yeah, it is acceptable to eat this. And we're not talking about ham. We're talking about a chicken that has a spot of blood on it. And the resolution is the local rabbi rules because he is the one who's responsible. This scholar may be a better Torah scholar, but he's not responsible for the town. And so they invite the local rabbi over, and the great scholar, in order to show support for the local rabbi, comes and is prepared to have some of the chicken because that's the ruling. So there are questions like that, and those are clean and unclean kinds of questions, that even though you have the thing written on your heart, you may need to go to an expert to get an answer for. So those are the two thoughts that I have. <laughs>